Welcome to Arconnect Sessions, episode 70. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Amelia, Donna, and Ken. As you may know, Arconnect has recently and relatively quietly launched Arconnect UK, a version of our website catered specifically to the British audience. As such, we've been particularly keen on following the updates on the recently held EU referendum in which the UK voted to leave the European Union. The consequences in the UK, and potentially everywhere, are unknown at this point, but very concerning to most, including those involved in the architecture industry. So today we've invited Rob Hyde to join us to talk about this particular issue. Rob is a practicing architect, lecturer, and the co-leader of the Research Atelier in Postgrad at the Manchester School of Architecture. So last week, the historic Brexit decision was made. Great Britain decided to leave the EU. So we're all, especially in the UK, reeling a little bit after last week's Brexit decision. Of course, this is affecting architects and architectural educators in the UK quite a bit, although there is still a fair amount of uncertainty as to what actually will happen next um, and how it will happen. But we wanted to first understand maybe what the first impressions were. So Rob, why don't you start out and just let us know what were you were first thinking when you first heard the decision? Well, I, I can obviously only talk from a personal point of view, and, and then I can go through the reactions of some of my colleagues and particularly the students as well. But from from a personal point of view, I uh, I, I stayed up uh, into the into the small hours, and I could see which way it was going. In some ways, well, obviously extremely disappointed from a personal point of view, and also I think from the profession's point of view as well. But I'm not overly surprised, which might sound a little bit strange, but uh, in the way in which I felt that the campaign was run and the way in which information was disseminated, you could see there was uh, there, there was serious risk to apathy about where things were going. And the same people who were arguing against the EU several months ago and over the last few years were the same people who are arguing for the EU So to stay within the EU. So I think for me, I wasn't overly surprised, but bitterly disappointed. And uh, the, the atmosphere within the city on, on traveling into the city on the Friday morning was was particularly muted. You know, there, there was there was just a, a level of shock, I would say, and and some quite upset people. However, I would say that uh, that was obviously not straight across the board. I mean, you know, I'm travelling from a city centre to a city centre, and a lot of the vote for leave came from within particularly the ex-industrial areas, particularly within the north of England. And they came from areas which are, you know, huge beneficiaries of European money. So the argument, it goes beyond one of economics, enters one which uh, a certain uh, a certain amount of... Uh, something's been let out of the box, let us say, in the campaign. And I'm quite concerned of how that actually gets put back in. It seemed, at least on our end over here, that a lot of the press around general predictions of what would happen at Brexit, at least from within the creative industries, did seem like there was general consensus that people were very much for Remain. Mm -hmm. And so I'm wondering, within your architecture community, both at the Manchester School of Architecture and elsewhere, what the kind of general consensus was for Remain or for Leave, and whether or not they were also quite surprised in the course of the actual decision. Everyone that I know within my own circles are, are extremely surprised. I think, you know, everyone that I know from my own my own circles, my own, you know, sort of uh, academic community and, 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 and community at home, you know, again, you know, the overwhelmingly pros to, to stay, basically. And I would say, you know, I mean, we're in a school within, within Manchester. We're a, a globally connected school. We have a diverse multinational composition, which is reflected in the both the staff and the student body. And um, our identity is one which is global, European, Northern English and Mancunian. And it's a, a massively embedded aspect of our character. And you can tell sort of going in and speaking to the students, both the UK-based students and the 
the EU students and international students are the real shock on the Friday and at the beginning of this week as well. And the nervousness as well, the confusion. And uh, yeah, there's been fallout, I would say, unintended consequences that I don't think people would necessarily have anticipated. Rob, you know, the one interesting thing about what we've been hearing over here, at least what I've been hearing, is how complex the issue is. It seems to be that people want to break it down as pitting one side versus the other. And generally the campaign, it seems from what's been described, the campaign was kind of languishing for a while up until the last few weeks where the leave people started kind of pushing more of a nationalist kind of a throw the immigrants out kind of attitude. And that's kind of what put it over the top. And we've been, I've been seeing some videos being posted and it seems to be that to me that that's actually kind of what sold it to a lot of the poor and working class was that kind of um, xenophobic attitude in those circles? I mean, again, I can only talk from a personal point of view. This is just my my observation of it. There were two sides to the Leave campaign. There was one side which was kind of headed by the Farage, which is UKIP, which is a, a much farther right uh, party, which only has one MP, uh, but they, uh, they seem to be getting a platform, even though they have no real mandate for a platform. And the other side of the Leave campaign was the official Brexit Leave campaign. Now, you know, they were slightly more moderate in their language, I would say, in what they were doing, but both, both became conflated. And I would say that... Uh, uh, from, from a personal point of view, I, I believe that they were, they were using certain language to communicate that they were disenfranchised in some way and that their voice wasn't heard because of Brussels, when really it's a, the issue is more of a London-centric issue. And, you know, the what what they voted for isn't necessarily going to give it them. You you also, you know, I, I described it the other day to somebody, it's like putting a gun to your own head and saying, take this Brussels and blowing your own brains out. It doesn't make any sense. So you have a, you have a, a situation where somewhere like Wales and Cornwall, which are huge beneficiaries of, uh, of European money, vote to leave. And then now they want confirmation that they can have that money back. I think there was a lot of untruths said in the campaign. I think one of them, which in particular was the 350 million, which was a, a figure that was yeah. on the side of the battle bus of the of the official campaign. And that 350 million was stated. Well, it's not the it's not the net figure, and it was stated that that could be put towards hospitals. And immediately on the Friday, Farage backtracked from that. And immediately on the Sunday, the official Brexit campaign said, "Well, we didn't say actually say that, even though it was on the posters, even though it was on buses." <laughs> so what happens? I mean, we've shifted from a very solicitor. You you know, a lawyer-focused uh, political class to one which is uh, a few journalists. So you've got Johnson, who was sat from the Spectator for lying, as far as I understand. I checked with Gove as well in terms of when he was Michael Howard's advisor. But again, this is you know a, a journalist class have kind of kind of moved into this space, and I'd be very careful. I mean, if you have a look through some of the, the last few years of Gove and his position on architects, the Building Schools for the Future program, he blamed fat cat architects creaming off the top when it was solicitors and contractors who were creaming off the top. So I don't think he has such a great view of architect and he's going to be one of the architects of the uh, post-Brexit. So what's the what's the overall sense? I know you're in um, the education area, but do you have a sense of the uh, the impact in the offices and in the uh, students who are going to be graduating or incoming students? Do they see coming to get an architectural or even an education in uh, Great Britain as a as a valuable thing or are they concerned by that? 
Well, we have a, I mean, I remember I've had friends come over from the States and from elsewhere to, to Manchester and London have been shocked at how diverse, how multicultural it is. And, and it is a real asset. And it worries me that that might be harmed. For me personally, I mean, I, I, I run a postgrad research studio. I run the professional practice side within within the postgrad, but within our student body. So we have a roughly around 800 plus students within the School of Architecture. And roughly about 40% of those are international students of those 800 and something. And about 20% of the overall I would say uh, to 30% are EU students. Now, they they move freely. When I jump on a plane to go over and see friends in Finland or Germany or wherever it may be, when I fly over people to come in and teach advanced Maya, you know, they just fly over from Germany, stay for the night, go back, have a beer with us. You know, the, it, it, the, the freedom of movement is, is, is really critical to the networks that we've established and the ability to move around. So I'm very concerned at how that might be affected. Talking to the students themselves, they're, they're, they're nervous, obviously. I mean, the impact isn't only on the international students either so for instance students i've seen i've seen offer letters that were given out on the wednesday to students for jobs and then on the friday those have been rescinded i've seen a number of those coming back and those are uk companies doing uk work to uk based students so you know it's uh, it's it's both uh, uk based students that are going to be affected and are being affected as well as eu students so there's a bit of a nervousness i would i would suggest that you know before invoking you know and this isn't an area of my expertise but before invoking article 50 you know it will take two years from when and i said this to Amelia before 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 it could be enacted the question is is whether article 50 is ever enacted because we may end up with something which is a quasi position which is uh, neither in nor out so rob to put more of a specific point perhaps on the actual things that might be lost if uh, britain doesn't decide to leave is there something you can point to in your work in education that has relied on EU regulation in some way specifically as a benefit and that would no longer be accessible. Well, um, I was noting down my my points on these because you know, I think it would be useful to go through some of those now. So there's a few points. Uh, Harriet Harrison in AJ today made a few good points and uh, that, that map onto the list that I made. I, I, I saw her article earlier today and maps onto a few of the points that, that I've got in here. So there is an issue of uh, EU students coming in. So looking at the figures that, that I picked up from uh, on on that, there's about 5.5 percent of EU students, which obviously is a huge amount of uh, amount of money coming into the uh, into the higher education sector. And that reduction in numbers will create a potential funding deficit. And also the reduction in numbers is not only from fees having to go up to compensate for that that funding deficit, but it's also from the potential perception of students coming to study within within uh, within the UK, which is uh, something that we need to address. You know, I think, you know, we're, we're at a very, very early stage in terms of in terms of where things are at. And I can't see there being them going along a very restrictive model. I have a feeling going forward that, that you know the view will be taken from an education sector that they can't they can't do that. I mean, you've got students coming in who are studying three years undergrad, spending a year in the city, and then two years post grad, and then spending two three years in the city. You know, the amount of money that they're spending out not only on fees but on uh, into the local economy. You know, the, these are massive issues. And somewhere like Manchester, you know, we we're a you know a seriously multinational multi ethnic city, and um, you know we we want to welcome and. Again, Again, from from our devolved parliament that we have within the within within Manchester, you know, we want to embrace and bring in inward migration into the city in order to grow it, and that's the only option. So, you know, if there is a national policy, whatever that national policy were, then I will be, and I doubt it will be as hardline as as, as some people fear. The local policy in terms of uh, where Manchester needs to be in terms of growing its economy 
is one which 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 relies on on uh, on, on students coming in. You know, I think there's a to look at the picture of this stuff. It needs to be looked at beyond the ring of the M25 and out into the out into the uh, the regions much much more. Again, from a university point of view, there is a risk in terms of Erasmus. There's two and about a quarter of a million students a year on Erasmus exchanges with various networks around Europe. Again, you know, this is you know it's quite quite upsetting. And you know, if you think about all the rela- friendships, relationships that that may never happen. If, if these things are pulled, you know, and the, these are very, very valuable exchanges, very, very valuable connections to other institutions are, are around Europe in terms of both at a student level and a teaching level and at a research level. I think the other one, which is a massive one, is the potential loss of uh, huge amounts of money in terms of research via Europe. So this is looking at the uh, Horizon 2020 type bids, which a lot of uh, UK research is, is based upon. And there's a real worry of where that money will actually come from. I mean, I myself and others, I saw a number of people people with their heads in their hands on Friday morning who are currently doing European bids and, and not too sure what's going to happen with them. I myself have a, a big bid in at the moment that may never, ever come off. So uh, these are, you know, things that are, are very important to the general education sector and also within within uh, architectural education. The other one, which is is also important to note, is the, uh, the current changes in architectural education to reduce the number of years it takes to study. So this is for parity with other European countries to allow more fluency of the, uh, of the, of the qualification around Europe. Again, you know, that's been a long-term conversation for you know since the Council of Europe decision on that. The question is, is how does that mean in terms of movement of the prof- of the professionally qualified and the partially qualified across Europe? I think that that's another question of what happens with that. And I say the, the the final important thing, which I've touched upon before, is the employment side. I think uh, you know we as a school we have a both on a, a locally and a nationally and an international level excellent connections back to employers and employment. I think you know if what could happen, the economy shrinks. If we have any, if we if we do have major problems at the moment, it's about nervousness rather than actual shrinkage or anything like that. We need to make sure that we're educating students to be agile or agile hybrids, able to uh, a- able to shift. So uh, somebody said to me, "Should we be a generalist or a specialist?" And I said, "You've got to be both." And you've got to be a, a jack of all trades and a master of one, but the one might change the day you graduate. So I think it's it's, re- it's really it's really important. I think now in this in this context, which is which is much more unknown, I think it's really important that we educate students to be much more adaptable. It's something that we've been doing anyway. So I'm not overly concerned in terms of the resilience of our students. It's just they may not be able to do exactly what they want to do while practices are quite nervous in terms of where things are going. Hopefully, some confidence will get back into the market. But uh, yeah, I would say employment for me is the one straight across the sector. But as I say, within the school, I, I'm quite happy that our students are, are adaptable. It's just a, a shame that they're going into uh, into the unknown, which is a bit more unknown than it was last week. Rob, can you mention how in the United States, the architecture and construction disciplines are, are tied together very closely, but I think very a little differently from how they are where you are. Can you talk a little bit about how construction firms and construction students might be faring in this as compared to architects? So within the UK, we work very closely with the allied professions. So, you know, the, the quantity surveyors, the project managers, design managers, et cetera, et cetera. I would say, you know, and a lot of our students will go into traditional architectural practices, which, which are slightly delaminated. But a lot of the students, increasingly, the larger practices are, are, are multidisciplinary. So, you know, they will have engineers, construction managers, design managers, project managers, QSs, uh, service engineers within within those organizations. I would say straight across, and also the, uh, a number of our students will go into contractors and work contractor side 
side as well. I would say, you know, the nervousness within any recession, I tell this to the students, in any recession, unfortunately, construction and architecture or construction property, whatever, is the the, the first to be affected by any nervousness in the market, um, by any any downturn, by any recession, and is the last to recover. And, uh, it, you know, as you know, you know, we're, you know, we, we, we operate in this complete bubble of construction and property. Talking to those within the uh, co-professionals, I mean, I sit on various uh, organizations and committees that, that have individuals from other professions in there as well. The nervousness that, that I'm feeling as a professional is straight across the board. I would say as well, even though, you know, I'm trying to get my head around on a kind of more wider, a wider country and social and, you know, cultural shift in, term, in terms of the politics of the country, I would also say at the same time, we really need to get our heads down and make the best of, of what is a potentially bad situation and make sure it's not as bad as it could be and to keep calm and carry on. And talking to developers that I know, they're coming across with the same thing, talking to some practitioners I know, what you don't want to do is get into a kind of collective depression and at the end of it you know the sun the sun still came up the following day you know people still need to go out and do their daily business people still have mortgages to pay and i think um you know again i think uh, you know across the board there's a, a slight kind of uh, well there is a, a kind of tinged kind of sadness of where things are and, and a worry and a slight uncertainty but at the same time there's very much uh, the british spirit of uh, again you know keep calm carry on and find a way through it i mean you know things are not going to grind to a halt you know i can't see you know the, the number of europeans who are fully integrated into british society with jobs with mortgages with businesses I meet on a daily basis, you know, shops on the way, the owners of shops on the way that I come in, I, I buy my, my lunch in the, in the morning when I go into work, I buy it from a Polish shop from across the road from the station. That is not going to disappear, right? It isn't, you know, there's no way that that can disappear. It would be crazy. So there will be, a, there will be some sort of middle ground in my view. But uh, again, I think, you know, the overriding thing is there is a, a nervousness, a disappointment, but very much, uh, you know, we've got to get on with it now. Attitude. So Rob, one of the things I was reading today on Guardian Online was uh, a point of view from the EU side, which was saying essentially, good riddance, that Great Britain was holding the EU hostage. And one of the ways they were noting that is that there wasn't an acceptance by Great Britain uh, for the common currency. So they are still operating on the pound and it kind of held a lot of things, I guess, to put it bluntly, hostage in inside EU. And now there's this move towards Scotland. Now they're thinking about making Great Britain even smaller. I mean, so there's this, they're, where they were connected to the continent, now it seems like, well, not only they've gotten smaller, they could potentially even get much smaller. That kind of shrinkage, you know, when you talk about there's a sense of nervousness and I try to, we're, you know, obviously we're, we're grappling with the potential Trump presidency and the kind of nationalism that is uh, really kind of burning over here. I wonder, you know, when you hear you say nervousness, that kind of nervousness is palatable, but I see, you know, I wonder if it isn't more catastrophic if you consistently shrink as a country and you're more inwardly focused rather than externally focused and kind of engaged with the, the global culture. I mean, it seems more dire to me than than you're letting on. And I and I know you want to put a, you're trying to think positively and, you know, move forward. But, you know, when America shifts, when that kind of shift happens here, that's a much more yeah. fraught kind of, and I want to keep that in mind when we're thinking about that as, as an American. So the period of splendid isolation, you know, it's never worked, right? So, you know, historically, this this idea of splendid I isolation has, has, has never worked from a UK, but, you know, and, and the other question is, you know, is this the next stage in the fall of the British Empire over a, a seriously long, long period of time? And, you know, the, you know, the, the, it depends which way you look at it. I mean, there was a 
this perception that that Europe was this kind of you know kind of uh, the issues that was happening in Europe as a kind of corpse that the UK was chained to. I would suggest that it's flipped back the other way since Thursday. That it's the EU changed to you know in, in some perceptions that, that you know in some of the people's perceptions that the UK has become a corpse that's chained to the uh, chained chain, chain to Europe. But I think that's more about a perfect storm of Europe being an argument within the Tory Party between uh, various factions, a very very weak opposition. And and I, I would say opposition is quite an interesting one because in in terms of Europe, what was good within Europe is that the UK took a very much uh, an opposition on things. But that then, if you look at some of the interviews from some of the European Parliament, that was a good thing because it felt that there was a, some kind of checks and balances. I would say that in terms of in terms of the, the Scotland debate, I think it opens up a number of unintended consequences. What Cameron should have done is he should have, within the referendum, have said that uh, it needed to be a unanimous decision between Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland and England. He didn't do that, which was crazy, which meant the Northern Ireland and Scotland both voted predominantly to uh, remain. You had very you know, weird anomalies where Wales and Cornwall, as I mentioned before, voted unanimously to go, even though they were the huge beneficiaries of, uh, of European money in proportion to the population in particular. I would suggest that the, the, way in which, the way in which there seems to have been quite a lot of manipulation, I think, is interesting. From my position, I think, um, particularly with what you touched upon in terms of the, the Trump side, is that I would say there's very much, uh, from what this is a personal perception again, from what I saw, there was very much of a kind of Machiavellian, the, the end justifies the means, but then no actual plan. So, you know, what is it that to, to, to fail to plan is to plan to fail. And, I, I, you know, it seemed to be an issue, an issue-based referendum with no actual plan of what to do afterwards from what I've seen. I would also say in terms of the ends justifying the means and all the rest of it, it brought to mind, uh, and I just sent it to Amelia before, the quote from, from Huxley, which is the means employed determine the nature of the ends produced. So if we end up in, in somewhere where the argument has been flawed or semi-lies or however you want to call it, you know, or untruths or or certain perceptions, then what you're going to get at the end of it is going to be a product of that stuff, which is extremely, extremely worrying. I would say as well, the you know, from my position, from what I can see, and, you know, again, you know, American politics is not a, not an area of my expertise, but looking at that, I think it's called the Oberton window, isn't it? The kind of shift in, in perception. So from what I can see that Trump is doing within the States is pushing the Oberton window as far in one direction as possible. So when it retracts back to any position back from there, that looks like a point of sanity. So uh, I would be very cautious on these things. But I think, you know, it, it requires proper forums and it requires a bit of passion and some some real you know, some proper politicians to be putting forward arguments in, in the right way and not just sound bites. I would say there was a lack of statesmen and stateswomen within this debate. So the one thing I've been thinking about is, have you been hearing about any projects stopping? I mean, when the uh, 2008 global economy crashed, projects that were even under construction just stopped. Are you hearing anything of that nature? Are you hearing about uh, large global firms pulling out and resituating back onto the continent? Are you hearing anything like uh, that nature? I mean, within other industries, there's been movements. Within construction, there just seems to be a, a, a slight nervousness and in insulating. So I think people are kind of uh, waiting and seeing. As I said before, you know, employment practices of, uh, from what I've seen, some practices of, uh, of, of withdrawn offer letters or, put, or postponed offer letters to see what happens over the coming weeks. I know a, a couple of. Uh, Within the press, a couple of uh, practices have, you know, sort of, you know, e even running up to the uh, up to the referendums, uh, there were a couple of practices that put staff on on redundancy notice just in case to see what happened. Whether they enact that is another matter. So I say at the moment, it's more about nervousness and to see what happens.
Rob, I'd like to ask one last question before we wrap things up. It has to do with the fact that even though, of course, things won't officially be able to go underway until there's the actual invoking Article 50 and the fastest that could happen would be within two years. Mm -hmm. Of course, within hours after the Brexit decision came in, the value of the pound fell 10 percent in an crazy amount of market panic. And a good friend of mine at this very juncture within like the next few weeks is trying to decide whether or not to pursue an architecture education in London. Mm -hmm. And she was researching scholarships. And then this happened and realized, huh, all of the scholarships I wanted to go for effectively, I'm getting that now because the pound value has dropped so much that it's in fact, my education is going to be significantly cheaper. I'm wondering if you and Manchester are anticipating because of this, perhaps a higher population of students coming in from outside of the EU or from elsewhere in the world, and whether there's any conversations around that. Well, this is the other consequence of this stuff, isn't it? Which is quite interesting. So I think there is a, a massive potential for, you know, that, that it could it, it, it could flip, as you say, the other way, it, particularly in areas which is scholarships and things like that, where, you know, the strength of the pound against the dollar, the strength of the pound against the euro, the strength, you know, I think that there's that there's very interesting ways that this could go. And you could you could see a situation where the, you know, the, the devalu- you know, the devaluing in effect means that there's much more opportunity for those from further afield to come in. And then you can imagine, you know, which would be great from my perspective, if a trade deal can be met with the EU and for the the freedom of movement of students and, and the reduction in the fees of students to remain, then you would get the best of both worlds. You'd get European students coming in. You would get uh, students that, that wouldn't necessarily be able to come in because it would be prohibited from a, a financial point of view coming in. I think that that would only be a good thing. Well, Rob, it's been very enlightening and very interesting talking to you about this. We hope, of course, that to keep the conversation going as developments continue and more speculation and hopefully more data come out about the economic and political repercussions for this for architects and the population in general. So thank you so much for joining us and let's keep the conversation going. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you. Well, that's it for episode 70. Thanks to everyone out there listening and thanks to Rob Hyde for joining us this week. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with the hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Talk to you next week.